0: Hello, History of the Netherlands listeners. Today is the 5th of February 2021, which means that it is exactly 78 years to the day since 13 members of the underground Dutch resistance were executed by firing squad for their role in producing, printing and distributing an illegal newspaper called Het Parole during the Second World War. Two years ago, we produced a three-part series about this group and their actions with the intent to keep the story alive in English. We made this before we started the History of the Netherlands podcast, and we have not yet shared it on this feed. So, to mark the anniversary, we are dropping all three episodes here now for the benefit of our newer listeners. Hopefully, they will give you an insight into a totally different period of Dutch history, which we are nowhere near yet in our general narrative. If you have heard these before, then here is a reminder of the date, and, if you wish, a chance to listen again. We hope you enjoy. This is the first episode of a three-part series about an event that took place in the Netherlands during World War Two. It is known in Dutch as... Het erste parole process, meaning the first parole trial. In it, 13 men, most of them between 20 and 25 years old, were captured, tortured, tried, and executed for their roles in printing, producing, and distributing the illegal anti-Nazi newspaper, Het Parole. At least another 10 were brutally punished in other ways. Two hours before they were executed, these men were allowed to write final letters to their families. 75 years later, we were lucky enough to be given access to some of these letters. What emerged as we dug deeper into their stories was this podcast series. We are going to introduce you to some of these people who through their rebellious actions, sacrificed their lives so that free speech and dissent would not totally disappear in a totalitarian state. We will follow their journeys, hoping to commemorate and preserve the memory of those involved and to honor the lives of everyone whose actions contributed to allowing us to live in a free and open society today. When liberty's light was at its dimmest. They kept the embers glowing. May we never forget it. Welcome to Free and Fearless, the story of the first parole trial. Episode 1, The Addicts Group. In the course of history, The experiences that we go through as individuals and societies inevitably become obscured with time. Events may be documented, talked about, and added to the historical record, but so often the feelings and impulses of people on a ground level are simply lost. This is one of the reasons why symbols matter and why we create them. It's to establish and preserve a collective feeling towards an event, or a character, or a purpose. Symbols give meaning where mere words will either fail or crumble over time, because as time takes its toll, and people and their words and their stories disappear, symbols remain. The meaning behind a symbol is not necessarily static, either. A symbol can mean one thing on one day, and something else the next. This occurred in the spring of 1940, in the month of May. As the Wehrmacht of Nazi Germany poured into the Netherlands, supported by the Luftwaffe, planes could be seen flying over the city of Amsterdam, just on the first day of the invasion. Anti-aircraft guns could be heard, Firing in the distance, all schools and public facilities were shut. The invasion of the Netherlands had begun. The capital city, Amsterdam, constructed over 700 years into a ringed network of unclean canals and tree-lined, cobblestone-paved streets, was not a particularly pleasant-smelling place at the best of times. But these were not the best of times, and on the 14th of May, a thick pole hung over it, and it carried the strong, sickening stench from oil fires that burned outside the city centre. In order to prevent the oil reserves in the city's petroleum harbour from falling into German hands, the Dutch military command had allowed British operatives to destroy them. The active military resistance to the German invasion, although it put up a fight, was capitulating. Other forms of resistance would have to take its place. In some parts of the city, other things burned also. Some watched in disbelief as their neighbours and other Amsterdamers went about throwing books and other things onto bonfires which had been lit in the streets. Residents from around the neighbourhoods came out of their houses, bundles of books in their arms, and sacrificed them to conglomerating conflagrations, neighbourly pyres of pragmatic caution. En masse, people sought to rid themselves of possessions that they knew would be looked at suspiciously by the incoming authorities. Cast not to the flames on the streets, but instead to the fettered waters of the city's canals, great clumps of of even more books, as well as newspapers and magazines were disposed into the water, creating small islands of drowned and soggy, soon-to-be-illegal material. Marxist, communist, Jewish, and Russian literature, as well as any other left-wing content, was destroyed. The people doing this to their own stuff sought to purge themselves and their lives of any risk that they might come under any attention at all. There would be no freedom of speech or dissent in the coming years under the new fascist regime. For the people who took this option, destroying their potentially suspicious material, perhaps their last act of freedom was to censor themselves before anyone else saw the need to do it for them. And in these events, on this smoky spring day, we see symbols changing in what they mean or purport to achieve. Book burning is a symbolic act, usually connected to a collective righteousness against something. Here, however, this destruction could now symbolize anything ranging from sensible, preemptive self-preservation to cowardly and timid submission. The books themselves also changed in their symbolism. These simple objects may have signified a certain station, or at least a certain level of intellect, education, culture, and other indicators of high social status. Now, all of a sudden, the upper crust were potential enemies of the state. Another example of the power of symbols, and how they can change, is what happened to the symbol of the Carnation in Holland on the night of the 28th of June 1940, about a month and a half into the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. The following day would be the birthday of the Dutch Prince Bernhard, consort to the Crown princess Juliana. He was a German-born prince who had no shortage of names, actually. Bernhard, Friedrich, Eberhard, Leopold, Julius Kurt Karl Gottfried Peter, Count of Bistefeld. When the war began, he showed bravery and loyalty to his adopted country and assisted in the escape of the royal family from invading forces. Now, the family were in exile in England. Whilst they celebrated the prince's birthday away from home, the people of their homeland would do so as well in spite of the fascist regime that they now lived under the prince's trademark since his student days was a white carnation one of which he would always wear on his left breast pocket when in public since his marriage to juliana in 1937 it had become a symbol that the dutch people associated with him however the public had never really celebrated his birthday with any vigour before, especially in the cities of Holland. In The Hague, the centre of Dutch national politics, a royal birthday was cause for a congratulatory register to be laid out in the Nord-Einder Palace. People could come and sign this, but Bounhard would expect little more than this. Historically, in Amsterdam, There had always been a somewhat terse relationship between the city and the House of Orange Nassau, so there was no reason for the occupying forces to expect any large celebratory crowds assembling or any untoward behaviour. That evening, however, before the Prince's birthday, in The Hague, people began laying carnations before the palace, next to a statue of William of Orange, also known as William the Silent, the father figure of the nation who had led its independence struggle three and a half centuries before. In Amsterdam, on the same night, in a tiny square near the city's biggest park, someone appeared also holding a carnation. They walked over to a small statue of Emma, who had been the nation's regent in the 1890s and mother to the beloved current Queen Wilhelmina. The next day, At both sites, the collections of flowers grew. In The Hague, orders to remove them were followed, before the mayor ordered them put back again. People began to attach carnations to their breasts and gather not only in these cities, but other towns and areas across the country. They flew the Dutch flag in places, now illegal under this new regime. But where there were no flags, there were flowers. In The Hague, at the palace, People dressing in the national colour of orange gathered and spontaneously sang the Wilhelmus, the centuries-old national anthem of the Netherlands, in defiance of the authorities. Under the guise of celebrating the Prince's birthday, the Dutch were showing that this occupation would not happen with as much ease as their occupiers might have hoped. The carnation, a symbol which had carried weight only in its relevance to the Prince, was on this day turned into one of defiance. It set the tone for what was to come. If the Netherlands and its people were to endure the Nazi occupation, their defiance would have to move from symbolic actions to real and consequential actions. This would occur, but not before many real and consequential actions revealed the timidity with which many others would submit. An organization called the AJC, standing for Arbeiders Jocht Centrale, meaning Workers' Youth Center, had been created in 1918 as a socialist youth group and a branch of the Dutch Social Democrat Workers' Party. We are going to be talking about them a lot, so just remember that the AJC is a socialist youth group. Members of this group in Amsterdam. Young men with socialist leanings knew early into the occupation that they would be disbanded, but were certain that they had to remain connected regardless. Nobody was sure exactly what the occupation would entail, but if there was going to be a resistance and defiant action to regain the sovereignty of the nation, then they wanted to be involved. Since the invasion the Dutch Nazi Party, the NSB, had been made the only legal political party in the country. Its paramilitary wing was the Barheids or the WA, which had begun exerting its violent presence on the street way before German troops marched down them. Young men of the AJC had engaged, and continued to engage, in confronting the thuggish WA street patrols. On the day of Prince Bernhard's birthday, the AJCers also joined in the Carnation Demonstration. However, as these young men would prove more than once, they were willing to go to greater and further lengths in rebelling against Nazism. They attached blades or pins underneath the flowers on their breasts, pre-empting the WAers who would attempt to flick the flowers off and hoping to cause them a nasty gash in the process. When the AJC stopped its operations at the end of July and officially announced itself unable to continue in mid-August, amongst their defiant members were a core group who had already begun resistance activity beyond the symbol of the carnation. Whether the AJC existed or not, they together decided to continue and grow in their efforts to counter the fascist stranglehold that had overtaken their country. They would meet at a sports center in the neighborhood of the Jordaan, on the Blumkracht. There, they would gather, sharing their opinions about what to do, and training in one of their favorite sports, which was jiu-jitsu. This group's network expanded out of the AJC to connect them variously to others in Amsterdam, who themselves were willing to resist in some way or another. Those who participated in this burgeoning resistance were located around the city, west to east, and north to south, and so they formed organically into a cell-like network, its members' relationships to each other ranging from firm to loose, or even to only by association. It is important to note that these men were young, naive in so many ways of the world, and that many of them would have been kicking around together since their childhood and adolescent years. Young boys tend to have groups of mates, and through social and educational hubs, they connect to other groups of mates. The AJC was one of these social hubs, the network of which persevered into wartime. There were many people involved in the events which we are going to talk about in this story. To try and keep it As podcast-friendly as possible, however, and to prevent it from going for hours and hours and hours, we are only going to focus on a few of them. For our purposes, for this tale, the important names to remember are those of the key initiators of their resistance cells. These were 24-year-old Ari Adix in the South, 20-year-old Jan Zwannenberg in the East, and 22-year-old Rob Dalmer in the west of Amsterdam. Ari Adix was a central figure in the disbanded AJC network of young, willing rebels. At the beginning of the occupation, active determination to rebel was not that common, even amongst left-wing organisations. Many of the young AJCers noted how unwilling their older socialist comrades were to stage an organised resistance. Ari lived on the Bolter Diepstraat in Amsterdam South. He was a socialist, and fiercely against both fascism and communism. He was not shy about espousing his sense of how things should be, and his style of defiance against the Nazis sat on the radical side of the ledger. In the jujitsu jitsu sessions on the Bloemgracht, he was competitive, and he showed no less when he encountered... WA militants on the streets. When the WA raided the jiu-jitsu school one day, Ari was the only person who stayed behind to guard the club's paperwork. When he was found by the raiders, they viciously beat him and literally threw him onto the street outside. He was unable to train for six weeks, and given what we know about his character, we can easily imagine that this time off, only further stoked his rage against the Occupiers. Ariadix resisted the Occupiers in every way possible. When Jewish rights started being curtailed, such as in January 1941 when Jewish people were banned from going to the cinema, he stood on the Neuendijk, one of the main shopping streets in Amsterdam, handing out scores of handbills to passers-by, protesting against it. These would often be finished with the sarcastic words hail het neiderlandse folk. He would get vegetables for his Jewish friends and neighbors from Aryan stores. In today's Amsterdam, young men on bicycles often yell abuse at tourists walking on the bike path. But Ari Aricks, he insulted Nazis and pro-fascists, usually whilst carrying illegal items that would incriminate him Instantly in the eyes of the authorities, such as his service revolver. He was not going to submit to Nazi rule, and he was not going to be subtle in how he went about that defiance. Jan Zwanenburg lived on the krugerstraat in Amsterdam East. He had a youthful look to him, was blonde and handsome, and like his fellow members of the AJC, held socialist-leaning sympathies. In October 1939, he had started a new job as one of Amsterdam's tram conductors. As early as the 20th of May, less than a week after the war had begun, and just before the dissolution of the AJC or of the Carnation protests, Zwandenberg went to his friend, Philip Hale's house. There, they were joined by three others, all connected through the AJC and the jiu-jitsu club. They discussed the occupation and how they should react to it. There was a conversation about the ineffective resistance seen in Germany years before when the Nazis had first come to power there, and how it had been squashed early and not maintained with nearly enough vigour. They talked about where they could begin, and they decided that it would be in the realm of public information they would start printing an anti-fascist pamphlet. By June, Jan's group had acquired a typewriter, in admittedly poor condition, as well as a stencil machine, in not much better nick, and stencil paper which they had purchased from a family on the Linnaeus Strut in the East. Stencil machines were the common means for making mass quantities of copy in the 30s and 40s, The one this small group of lads in the East acquired would have been a small, hand-cranked model that were used in schools and offices around the country. Given the ubiquity of stencil machines, it was fairly widely known how to work one, but making it look good, that took experience that they were definitely lacking in at first. The machine is properly called a mimeograph. And they had to use a special wax-covered paper that would first be fed into a typewriter to prepare a stencil. Using a typewriter in itself is also a skill, and for this they obtained help from a young girl that one of them knew. Whilst her name is lost to history, her rebelliousness in typing up this illegal copy is not. With the paper properly inserted, a mechanism on the typewriter itself would also have to be disabled so that the ink ribbon did not lift. Meaning that when the sharp type elements came down on the wax-lined paper, they removed the wax lining in accordance with each letter, creating the stencil. Once finished, this master copy was then placed in the stencil machine, and the ink would be able to permeate through it where the wax had been removed. Copies could then be printed out from it on blank sheets. It was laborious work, and mistakes were easy to make. Putting too much ink into the machine could be messy. Obvious ink stains on your hands or clothes are annoying at the best of times. But they are even worse if you have to explain them to an SS officer who is looking for any sign of active dissent. The first copies they made contained a few articles written by the members of Zwanenburg's group themselves. They received contributions, notably poetic verses of resistance from quite well-known poet Jan Jacobs. They also inserted some verses from the Dutch national anthem, Wilhelmus. The newsletter was given the name De Freie Niederlander, and the young men went about distributing it amongst people they knew. They must have been proud of their work, even though the first editions would be looked back upon as being of poor quality. As the summer passed, this particular group of AJC mates in the East continued compiling, printing and distributing. They became somewhat brazen about it, four of them one day even standing underneath a bridge on the Linnaeus Strut, handing out copies in public seemingly unaware of the risk-laden path upon which they had now embarked. As the ink dried on the first edition of De Freya Nederlander over in the East, in the West, fellow AJCer Rob Dalma and his friend Henk Rose began their own little defiant acts against the new regime. Dalma was a tall and honest-looking young man, He was always calm and measured, not prone to panic, and seen by his peers as positive and encouraging. He had full, blonde hair, parted neatly and combed over, and his rounded spectacles and big ears which stuck out of his head lent even more to the impression that he took whatever he was doing with earnestness. Fit and athletic, he had been a leader in the sports activities of the AJC and would take a leadership role in the network that had been maintained despite the organization's dissolution. He was a frequent attendee at the jiu-jitsu sessions on the Blumkraft. Dalma and Rose also got their hands on a typewriter, and began typing out their own anti-Nazi content, generally contradicting things they've read or heard about in the now state-run press. They would roam around the neighborhood, dropping copies into random letterboxes, with no particular order or system to their work. It was seen as childish by some of their compatriots, and eventually Dalma and Rose themselves agreed. They decided to do more. What was not childish was Dalma's intent. Many AJCers, such as he, advocated that they shift their resistance to become more militant. Like in any organization, reaching a consensus on how this should happen was difficult. One of Dalma's friends, Jay Brocher, was extremely keen on them becoming an underground guerrilla unit, but stressed the need that they take their time, properly prepare, and train themselves to wage sustainable war against the invader. Dalma agreed with him, although he and others wanted to start blowing up gas factories and Attacking the electricity supplies already, the apparent futility of dropping angry newsletters into random letterboxes may have been what convinced Dalma's friend Hank Rose, as he also, albeit reluctantly, came to this view. Either way, one day Brochus gave Rob Dalma a gun. This was totally illegal under the law of the occupied forces. Violent resistance was now very much on the cards. The members of the disbanded AJC were, from the beginning of the war, active in their own ways with various acts of resistance. In addition to joining in the street brawls in the city, countering attacks by fascist youth gangs on the Marxist and Jewish sections of the society, they would commit nuisance actions. Some would make stickers and plant them on cars and other objects around the city. These stickers would read things like, Deutschland gewinnt nicht den Krieg, an England ist der Sieg. Germany will not win the war, England will have victory. They would stick these on German military vehicles. One who worked at the Fokker factory even stuck these on the wings of the German military planes that were coming out of it. Ari Addix was getting involved in whatever he could, training fiercely in jujitsu and putting it to use against fascists. In the East, Zwanenburg's group were printing and distributing their newsletter, De Vrije Nederlander, as well as other resistance propaganda. Rob Dalmer and his friends were looking to do more than just type angry complaint letters against the Nazis. In late 1940, their lives collided with that of someone else who was also engaged in defiance a man older than them named Franz Goodhart to preserve my untrained non-dutch throat for the remainder of this series as well as to save you from having to listen to me butcher it i am from this point on going to call him goodhart Now at the age of 36, Goodhart had been a member of the Communist Party in his earlier days, but was expelled in 1934 and had become a fierce anti-fascist and anti-communist journalist. Working before the war in Ghent, Belgium, as a correspondent for a newspaper called Forout, he had railed against the neutrality policy that the Netherlands had taken towards the increasing militarization of their neighbor, prior to the invasion. At the outbreak of war, Goodhart became cut off from this journalistic outlet, as well as his source of income. He also found himself thoroughly disappointed by the Dutch media's submission in general to the Nazi occupiers. Prior to World War II, the Netherlands was what is considered a pillarised society, segmented into loosely defined religious and ideological sections, these being Protestant, Catholic, social democratic slash working class, and then a generally economically liberal pillar. Media, predominantly in the form of newspapers, reflected these pillars. After the invasion, the different newspapers from different pillars took different approaches towards the new regime. The Protestant Standard, sought to remain neutral to the occupation and lost most of its readership because of utter dissatisfaction with this approach. The right-wing, but economically liberally-minded, Telegraf entirely submitted to the new regime, while the staff of the Catholic Workers' Paper, the Volkskrant, were forced out because of non-complicity. The paper was taken over by National Socialists and operations ceased totally in 1941. So in July of 1940, Franz Goodhart began producing his own newsletter, which he called Newsbrief van Pieter et Hun. Peter et Hun was a famous Dutch journalist and poet during the Patriot time in the lead up to the French Revolution in the 1780s. And Goodhart greatly admired his work. In English, this name would translate to Peter the Grouse, which is a pretty grouse name. Goodhart understood from the outset how risky this work would be. He knew that if he involved other people in it, the risk of being caught would only increase. Ideally, he wanted to create the entire thing alone. His major problem at the beginning, however, was money, or that is, a particular lack thereof. No longer working for 4 Out meant that he no longer had an income and he only had a limited amount of money with which to buy the necessary supplies. So just a few days after the capitulation, he visited a Jewish friend of his, Eddie Davids, a tax consultant and businessman who was, of course, very against the Nazis. Goodhart had been hoping Davids would give him money, but instead, he outright rejected the idea, saying, you seem crazy, everyone is committing suicide. We are in a terrible tragedy, and now you come with such nonsense? It's hard to know whether Goodhart understood the severity of the situation the Jewish people were now facing, but this reaction surely must have opened his eyes. He decided to risk what he had and fund the first weeks of his pamphlet by himself, just to see how it went. He wrote and stenciled it himself and delivered it to well-connected people he knew as well as barbershops around Amsterdam, so that their clients could read them. He finished the first article of the first edition with the words, Do not bend. Do not stoop. Do not cooperate with the enemy. Have courage and trust. The future is a free Dutch people in a free community of nations. When Eddie David saw the news brief, he completely changed his reaction to it and agreed not only to help with money, but also offered technical assistance. They would now work together. They ended up creating about 500 copies of each edition, and this became a time-consuming process. You first needed to make the stencil and print it out, and then fold it up into envelopes, address each envelope, stamp them all, and then deliver them. It was difficult and highly illegal work executed in the hot confines of small Amsterdam rooms in the middle of a Nazi-occupied summer. Nerve-wracking puts it mildly. Goodhart had a typically dry Dutch sense of humour. After the war, he recalled how they would stencil on Saturday afternoons, and Eddie would always call up a certain snack bar on the Dumruck to get lunch delivered to them. When the doorbell rang, the anxiety levels would rise so Goodhart would try to break the tension by making jokes like, Eddie, Eddie, that's just the Gestapo at the door. Gallo's humour at its finest. It quickly became clear to Goodhart that if he wanted to increase the output of his newsletter, he needed to get more help. So he began asking friends and acquaintances. One of these was a man named Jaap Melkman, who was friends with the parents of the radical ajc -er Ari Uddix. When Franz Goodhart became connected to the young men of the AJC whom we met earlier through Ari Uddix, it might be seen as the beginning of an intergenerational collusion within this part of the Dutch resistance. An elder, experienced activist, already connected to many other experienced activists, brought into contact with a group of younger, Naive yet determined rebels, willing to spread the agenda of rebellion. Even across the wider community, people reacted differently to the imposition of Nazi rule. This was often with the primary aim of self-preservation. Goodhart himself had looked upon those scenes that we described at the beginning, of Amsterdamers casting books and other material into fires and canals. For a fierce believer in the freedom of speech, it baffled Goodhart to see people censor themselves like that. He, instead, was determined to wage war. Many people thought his objective of producing counter-information was futile. He struggled in his search for support. In the young, eager and fierce Ari addicts however, he met someone willing to go to the front line. Goodhart described Addicts as being tall and raw. He said he walked around in rubber shoes, with a hand grenade in his pocket, to spread het parole at night. He was typically one of those people from the romantic atmosphere of the first illegals. When Jaap Melkman approached adix about Goodhart, he agreed to help stencil and distribute the news brief von Peter Hun. adix brought in his friends from the AJC, Svannenberg, Dalmer, Rose, and others whom they were all connected to. By October 1940, they had crystallized around the need to distribute the news brief into a somewhat fairly loose network that included at least 50 people. Most, but not all, were AJCers. They would become known to history as the Utdix Group. They were reasonably well organised, most of them were between 20 and 25 years old, although the youngest was 17, and the oldest in his 40s. Each group, or cell, functioned around one of the AJCers. Zwannenberg's group operated from Amsterdam's east, in the north there was a cell, and there were three in the south, where Ari Ariadix's own small cell was. There were three more in the West, where Rob Dalmer lived, and Artix was the general liaison between all of them and Melkman and Goodhart, who were providing them with the content to print. They were enthusiastic and righteous, delivering illegal newspapers and pamphlets, stickering over German military and police equipment, and fighting local Nazi thugs. As the tensions in Amsterdam grew over the first winter of the war, They were at the forefront of it all. In February 1941, fights broke out between WA street thugs and Jewish Amsterdammers in the Jodenburg, the Jewish neighbourhood. Adix and his compatriots ran down to the Jewish quarter to join the fight against violent anti-Semitism. Afterwards, when German troops and Amsterdam police began deporting Jews, the young AJCers also joined in the mass protests in the factories, the docks, and streets that became known as the February Strike, the only public protest in Europe by non-Jews against the Nazi treatment of Jews during the war. During this demonstration, Jan Zwannenberg lay down on the tracks in front of a tram depot to stop his colleagues from going out to work. The strike was ultimately a failure, in that it did not prevent the oncoming genocide of Amsterdam's Jews, however, it showed that many ordinary people were willing to resist the occupation. It was in this atmosphere of defiance that the news brief van Peter Hoon was replaced by a new newspaper. It was given the name Het Parool, which in English can mean either the password or the motto. Throughout 1940. Goodhart had been conspiring with others, journalists, politicians, thinkers and activists such as Lex Althoff, Kost Forink, Hans Warendorf, Moritz Kahn and Jaap Nunes-Faz. Together they chose to exercise their free speech rights, no matter that the law no longer granted them these. The first editions of Het Parole came out on 10th of February 1941. They announced themselves to the world. For their subtitle, they defiantly chose two words from the Dutch national anthem. These were, "vrij" on Verfeerd. Meaning, free and fearless. The first article started strongly as well. by villain dit niet. We don't want this. It then went on to list, in point form, all the atrocities that had occurred in just the past week. This was the real news not the Nazi-sanctioned-censored version found in the compliant, established press. By being a larger conglomeration of well-connected people, Het Parole had access to greater and better resources than the young men of the AJC or just Goodhart alone. Jan Zonenberg and his group in the East, for instance, making their stenciled, hand-cranked and scrappy newsletter would never have been able to get it out on the kind of scale that this new, bigger and more professional publication could. Most importantly, by August 1941, Herr parole got access to printing presses, not just stencil machines, which meant that the number of copies which could be printed per day became exponentially higher. For the Udtix group, which had been engaging in all kinds of different forms of resistance and distributing all kinds of illicit material. Distributing HEP Parole became a major part of their activities. So let's imagine what distributing HEP Parole may have been like. First of all, you're sitting in your living room, with stacks of highly illegal material staring across the room at you. It's summer, it's hot, and it's the Netherlands, so the sun doesn't go down until very late. You are waiting for the cover of darkness, after the now-standard curfew has come into effect, so that you can go out and do your work in appropriate concealment. You jump as the doorbell rings, even though you are expecting it. You open the door to find your friend, Jan Zwannenberg standing there on the way home from work, in his tram driver's uniform, on his bicycle. You hand him a couple of boxes filled with copies of Het Parool, which he sits on the back rack of his bicycle and covers with his tram driver's cape. After a few quiet words, he cycles away, off to do exactly what you're about to do, in a different part of the city. When the sun finally sets, you put on a massive dark jacket that you usually only use in winter. You hope it's not too conspicuous, but even the summer nights can be chilly, so you take your chances. You pick up the remaining boxes, conceal them under the jacket, and slip outside as quietly as possible. Luckily, in wartime, curfew means blackout, so the only light comes from the moon and the stars in the night sky. Even more luckily, in the Netherlands, even in summertime, it's often quite cloudy, an even bigger advantage to you. Your bicycle is too squeaky and rattles on the cobblestone. So you go on foot, treading as lightly as possible. You need to get rid of what you are hiding underneath your jacket as quickly as you possibly can, so you make a beeline towards a large apartment building. You know that if you drop a box through the door of one of these buildings, you can reach many people at once. If this is not your first time, then another thing you have to consider is not to go to the same places as you had been previously. If you had accidentally thrown a parole through the letterbox of someone sympathetic to the regime, or even worse, an nsb that house might now be under surveillance. After you have finished your job and were certain that you were not being shadowed, you would return home. You probably wouldn't be able to sleep for a while as your body processes the adrenaline and you think that every noise outside will be followed by a heavy-handed knock on the door telling you that you've been caught. So, from February to August 1941, the members of the Utdix group would have been doing this a lot. Utdix's house was the main conduit for the different groups that were based in the different parts of the city. It's important to remember, though, that they were not exclusively delivering het parole, and nor were the distributors only AJCers. The Artix household, including his mother and father, were all involved in various resistance activities, so it wasn't uncommon for resistance people to be found there. Artix was friends with a guy called Buter, who had been distributing leaflets for the Nederlandse Uni. He is going to become pretty important to this story. Buter was involved with a different stenciling group, so we can imagine that in the protected confines of the house, they would have spoken about their shared experiences. Addix's mother recalled after the war, once hearing Buter anxiously saying to him, Ari, I'm too nervous. I want to stop doing this. In the late summer of 1941, Goodhart sent Ari Addix on a mission to Brussels to deliver exemplars of het parole. He wrapped them up around a stick and hid them inside the frame of his bicycle, which he was to ride to Brussels before taking a train home. It was a fortuitous timing for Addix because by that stage, the group which he had helped form had begun to worry a little bit about his involvement. He had always been cavalier in his actions, but he had started ignoring decisions the group had made together. Most specifically, That they would avoid going into the city centre unnecessarily. Ari had always walked the fine line between heroic and foolish in his actions, but the others began wondering whether he wasn't putting all of them at risk. Some even considered whether or not they might be better off liquidating him. Although killing their friend would be an extreme step, and definitely one not taken lightly as evidenced by them not actually doing it, doing so may have saved the other AJCers. The group at this stage seems to have lost some of the almost childlike innocence that they had had at the beginning of the war, but unfortunately, this seemingly newfound maturity was coming on too late, and unbeknownst to them, they were already being hunted, and the hunters were about to move in. On August 31, 1941, Queen's Day in the Netherlands, the group was warned to avoid the areas around Dam Square and Rembrandt Plain because riots were expected. Some of the members of the group, however, including Buter, the guy who had been growing increasingly nervous about his involvement with them, decided to go into town anyway. After fights broke out, police conducted a razzia on the Calvastrat. He was picked up and taken to the police station on the single. Whilst there, Buter was advised by a quote-unquote good policeman at the station that he had better get rid of a gun which he had. So when he was released after his sister came with proof of his identity, he did just that. If he had been nervous before, he must have been even more so now. On the evening of the 1st of September, Franz Goodhart began to worry. Waiting in the living room of the Addix household on the Boeterdiepstraat, he and mevrouw Addix were expecting Ari to return from his trip to Belgium at any minute, but as the time ticked away, he had not yet returned. Goodhart began to fear that something had happened to the boy, who is now assisting him in his paper resistance. From the beginning, Goodhart had not wanted to involve others in his work because of the increased risk. So as he sat there drinking coffee with Mfrau Adix, he must have been worrying, not only for Ari, but also for himself and the entire operation. When he left, and Ari had still not yet arrived, one can only imagine the thoughts racing through his head about what may have happened. But fortunately, Ari was held up only because his train had stopped at Central Station rather than at Amstel Station, closer to his home, so his bike ride across town took longer than expected. Riding across the entire city would also have given him plenty of opportunities to abuse a lot of Nazis, which may have held him up a little longer too. In any case, after getting home, he quickly left to visit Goodhart and report back from his mission to Belgium. His mother didn't see him again that night after he left to see Goodhart. He returned home late and left early the next day to go to his work at the Drucker cable factory to collect his salary. At some point that morning, after Ari had gone to the Drucker, a big and imposing man knocked on the door of his house, which his mother opened. He told her that he was Muneer Janssen from the Drucker. Ari's work and that Ari could come back now. If this had not been the early days of the resistance, and if those involved in defying the authorities already had the experience that they would later garner, we can assume that Mfrau Adix would have acted with much more caution and suspicion than she did. She expressed her surprise, and told them that Ari had already just gone to Drucker. It was odd to her that this man said that he was from there, but she did not consider it more than just that, an oddity. Secondly, peering around the large figure of this Meneer Jansen at the door, she could see another man, walking back and forth on the street, quite clearly a companion. If she had realised that the two men at her front door were actually police agents, collaborators with the Nazi regime, there is no way that she would have answered honestly when they asked her when Ari would be home that evening. Around 7pm, she replied. Naively, unwittingly, and tragically, an appointment had now been made, which would end with the death of one of the Utdix family. When Ari came home that afternoon, mevrouw Utdix could see that her son was troubled, Without getting into the details, he told her that he had received a warning, that something had clearly gone wrong with his illegal activities, and that he had to clean everything up as soon as possible. This was a discernible change from when she had seen him on his return from Belgium, so sometime between then and now, fewer than 24 hours, everything had changed. When she told him that a big guy called Meneer Janssen from the Draka had visited their home, Ari also expressed his surprise. The only Janssen he could remember from the Draka was a really old guy. The urgency of the warning to clean up his work seemingly distracted him from the alarm bells that should have been ringing loudly in his head at this point. He went up to the attic and began thinking about what had to be done with the incriminating stuff around him, and not about this Meneer Janssen. Sure enough, that evening, the doorbell rang. By this time, Ari Adix's father, Martin, was also home. He and his wife had been participant in helping Jewish neighbours and hosting resistance men in their home. He was, after all, friends with Jaap Melkman, who had recruited his son into the illegal distribution work in the first place. Despite this, he was a careful man, and although he helped Ari with some of his work, he wanted no real knowledge of it. But this time, at about quarter past six, on Tuesday, the 2nd of September, 1941, Martin Utdix was not careful enough. He opened the door to two men who said they were looking for Ari, Meneer Ardix yelled out upstairs that the callers at the door were for Ari, but he received no response. He invited them inside and told them to go upstairs where they could find him. Ari would have heard the footsteps of the two men as they began to ascend the typically steep Amsterdam staircase. At that moment, he was sitting at a typewriter, addressing envelopes with which he would send out copies of Het Parole, which was sitting next to him. The men introduced themselves as Officer Dalt and Kauper from the Bureau of Jewish Affairs in the Amsterdam Police Force. They told him that they would like to bring him to the station at the Pieter Ehrtstraat for a little interrogation. What we know about Ari Adix is that he was bold, brave to the point of being reckless, and hated Nazis with a violent passion. Later on, Mefrouw Adix and the arresting officers would give very different details about what exactly unfolded next. But needless to say, it did not end with Ari calmly cooperating with the police and being attended out the door. But Frau said that Ari wanted his jacket, which, to be fair, is a reasonable response in Amsterdam at any time of the year. According to her, the officers mistook this as an attempt to escape, and a fight broke out between Ari and Dalt, in which Ari grabbed the police officer by the throat. Ari might have been naive about his resistance work, but fighting was something that he was pretty experienced at, and given his involvement in the jujitsu Jitsu Club and against WA thugs on the street, really enjoyed doing. At the noise of the scuffle, Meneer and Mfrau Adix came running up the stairs and said, Damn, what is this here? By now, Kauper had joined his colleague in the fray, but Muneer Adix pulled him away, apparently shouting that he let the two men fight it out. Dowd, despite being grabbed by the throat, shouted to his colleague to use his weapon. Pandemonium erupted, with Munir Adix and Kauper then struggling with each other, and Mefrau Adix trying to calm everyone down. Whatever the exact sequence of events, three things happened. Ari did some sort of skilled and presumably awesome jujitsu tumble and threw doubt over some flower boxes. A door to the outside was opened and two shots were fired from a gun. One was at point-blank range from Cowper directly into Martin Adix's neck. The other grazed the arm of his wife as Ari bolted down the stairs to the second floor through the kitchen and out of the house. In the densely populated confines of Amsterdam's neighbourhoods where the rooftops all connect, Ari sprung one level down, fled across his neighbour's properties, and made his escape. He was now officially a fugitive. So that's mevrouw Adix's account. Do you want to hear the police's version of events? Well, according to them, during the tussle, Meneer Adix went after Cowper with a knife and Mefrau Addix attacked Dowd with a hammer. The shots fired, with us an act of desperate self-defence. As much as the idea of a fearsome, hammer-wielding Mefrau Addix appeals to our imaginations, we tend to trust her account more, since it seems unlikely that she would have escaped arrest in the aftermath if this was actually true. Also, we have an inherent distrust of, you know, Nazis. Ari sought help from his friend, Fons Meovis, who lived nearby. With Meovis' help finding him refuge with another AJC, he became a so-called Dijker, the Dutch term for someone going into hiding during the war. A culturally relevant term for a people whose country is half made of water. Translated, it means that he dived under, At some point in the evening, he saw Buter. Ari Addix was apparently incredibly distressed and distraught when the two men saw each other, and this made a lasting impression on Buter. Word would have quickly gone around the AJCers and the Parole Distribution Network about the attempts to arrest Ari and the shooting of his parents. In the north, another member of the network... A man named Nico Snyders, who had worked closely with Ardix on printing parole, was also arrested. In the East and the West, Jan Zwanenberg, Rob Dalmer, and the crews who worked with them began to think of what to do now with Ari. The Ardix group were almost all young men, who would have had the self-confidence and arrogance that is almost always associated with young men. When you are in your early 20s, You think you're invincible. This had been one of their greatest strengths in the beginning, giving them the gumption and the drive that was necessary to resist in the first place, especially in the face of such overwhelming danger. Now, however, with the attention of the occupiers directly focused on one of their own, this was a time when caution would be needed, rather than bravado. After a lot of effort, they were able to find a hiding place for Ari away from Amsterdam, in the forests of the Veluwe, from which they hoped he could be spirited away to England. Ari, however, Ari refused to go. He wanted revenge. He therefore remained their primary concern, and they continued to try and keep him hiding in Amsterdam. It didn't occur to the others that perhaps they should also dive under themselves. Both of Ari's parents had been taken to hospital after the attempted arrest of their son. Mrs. Ardix had just a minor wound on her elbow. Martin Ardix's condition, however, was much more serious, and on the 6th of September, he succumbed to his injuries and passed away. On the 11th of September, Martin Ardix's funeral took place, with a planned procession in public to the cemetery in Zorkvliet, by the river Amstel. It was a typical Amsterdam early autumn day, with a bit of sun and a bit more rain. It would have been chilly in the wind. The police, indicating their concerns that the death of Meneer Adix and the now outlaw fugitive status of his son Ari may serve as a galvanizing occasion for other resistors, blocked the funeral procession and were out in force to arrest anyone who may have been involved in the illegal activities which have been happening in the Boto Deep Strut. At least one arrest was made. Despite this obstruction and with an atmosphere that must have been full of tension and fear, hatred and sorrow, the funeral took place. Perhaps the Tumultuousness provided the perfect cover or distraction, for if the police searching for Ari Adix had paid close enough attention, they might have noticed a motorbike with two men on it, pulling up to the procession and stopping to watch for a moment. On the back of the bike, Martin Adix's son looked out at the ceremony to honor his dead father. A risky move, typical of someone as bold as Ari. This act was commemorative, and it allowed him to say goodbye. But it also meant something more. It showed that Ardix would not be cowed, would not bow to the terror of the Nazi regime as close to home as it might have hit, and he would continue with his own trademark acts of defiance. He couldn't have known it at the time, however, But this would be one of his last. In less than a month, he would be dead, and a process would have begun from which the rest of the Utdix group would not escape. Thanks for listening to Free and Fearless. This has been the first of a three-part series. Be sure to tune in next week for Episode 2, The Process. This has been researched, written and produced by Julian Smith and Joe Wegasani. We are Republic of Amsterdam Radio. For more information on this series, as well as other projects we have created, go to republicofamsterdamradio.com. Thanks to Stichting Democracy and Media for making this possible.